Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk to the author of a new book that is especially interesting. And in this episode, that book is Africa United, How Football Explains Africa by Steve Bloomfield. It's almost a cliche to say that everywhere you turn in Africa, somebody is watching or playing football, but it's also fairly accurate. Steve's book is an attempt to drill down and find out exactly what football says about Africa, while also drawing out some extraordinary stories. Here's the interview. And opposite me, joining me here in in the offices high above uh, Westminster, in the centre of London, I have uh, Steve Bloomfield, the writer behind Africa United, How Football Explains Africa. And the whole point of this book is that wherever you turn in Africa, someone is playing football, someone is watching football. It's so central to uh, almost the rhythm of life. Yes, absolutely. I mean, football is everywhere in Africa, and I mean absolutely everywhere. Um, whether that's you know kids playing football in the streets, you know, from you know, Freetown in Sierra Leone to Nairobi, Kenya, or whether that's people watching matches uh, in in bars, in video shacks, in their homes, uh, and and you get this you know, across the continent. There are very few things where you can say Africa is, and you know, and it makes it, and, and it's true for all fifty three countries. Um, but actually, football is one of those things where it doesn't matter where you are on the continent. Um, you know, people love football, and people are passionate about it, and people are playing it. And of course, you wrote this book after you were working in Africa as a journalist. You were the independent uh, mm. Africa correspondent. Uh, can you give us a little bit more about your background, you know, where you came from and how it all built up, I suppose, to, to writing this book? Um, right. How it all built up. I, I get, <laughs> no, I guess I'd have to start it when I was seven years old. And I always loved football from, you know, from you know, as long as I can remember, I played football in the playground at school you know I'd get to school early so we could play in the playground before um, school started when we had break time we'd play football when we had lunch time we played football after school we'd play football uh, and then when I was seven years old my dad took me to go and see Aston Villa um, I'm from Birmingham and Villa were the local side and he is an Arsenal fan so it's quite a big thing for him to take me to another club uh, but he wanted me to see live football and thought you know if I'm going to support anyone, I should support a local side. And I remember, you know, from the first moment I went to Villa Park, I was hooked and, you know, became a very passionate Villa fan, um, which I remain to this day. Um, not that that's made me very happy, but <laughs> it's, you know, it is what it is. You mentioned that a few times in the book. How, uh, <laughs> yes. How you're an Aston Villa fan and how it's not the best lot in life. But then again, my, my dad took me to my first football match uh, and I, I'm, I'm from Newcastle, so I could have ended up with quite a good team. I ended yeah. up with Middlesbrough, Ooh, and I've been okay. stuck with them ever since. So uh, Aston Villa is like the promised land as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Well, well, I thought we were quite good until until actually I moved to Nairobi, and uh, which I know I've jumped forward a bit uh, a few years there, but still, when I, when I moved to Nairobi t- in 2006, uh, Villa at the time were, were not bad. We'd finished sixth in the Premier League a couple of years in a row, um, and I noticed instantly arriving in, in Kenya that 
you know, football shirts were everywhere, that everyone seemed to be a football fan. Uh, but it didn't take me long to realise that no one was wearing a Villa shirt. Uh, they're all wearing English shirts, so, but, it, but it was Chelsea, it was Arsenal, it was Manchester United, sometimes a bit of Liverpool as well. Never Villa. Uh, and, and yeah, and part of the book is, uh, is yeah, a search for Villa fans in Africa. A, a small part, a small part. And I do find one eventually um, in Nigeria, but uh, yeah, who was a genuine Villa fan. Who, and, and, and this was the thing I loved about it. He was wearing a fake Aston Villa shirt, which... And it was a new fake Aston Villa shirt as well. It had the you know the current sponsor on. It was you know it was very up to date, which made me think, which made me realise there was someone in Lagos that had thought there was enough of a market for Villa shirts that he made a whole batch of them. Now I never tracked down this guy, and I've no idea whether he sold more than one, uh, but that gave me a little bit of hope. Mm-hmm. And you, how long did you work in? Uh in Africa. You were based in Nairobi, mm, weren't you? I was based in Nairobi. So I moved out in 2006. I've been So before then I've been working at the Independent on Sunday for a few years. And I always wanted to be a foreign correspondent at some stage. And I've been fortunate enough to do some quite exciting trips. Um when I was at the Indian on Sunday, I went to Colombia for a while. I did a trip to North Korea. I did a couple of things in Europe. Uh and and, and loved it and thought this is the kind of journalism I really want to do. And then, and, and Africa had always intrigued me as a continent. Uh, my, my grandfather had been there, and, you know, uh, when, when he was younger. It had been one of those places that I, I had a real interest in. Um, part of my degree at university had been in African politics. And then this position came up for the Independent as their Africa correspondent. And so I badgered the foreign editor for, you know, many weeks that <laughs> he should... Yeah, you know, let me go and uh, and do it, and eventually I wore him down, and so I got a plane to Nairobi, and and I was there. I was probably based in Nairobi for about four and a half years, uh, initially for the Independent, uh, and then also for uh, Monocle, the magazine I work for now uh, in London, uh, and then my final two years in Nairobi, I was uh, I was working on this book. Uh, Africa United and and you know during that time I travelled all over the continent so I think 25 26 countries across Africa mm-hmm. I went to in the end um so everywhere from you know Somalia Congo Sudan to yeah Ghana Nigeria South Africa and this book is is about what you were covering as a journalist it's about the life that you came across mm. as a journalist you know poking your nose into all sorts of things and just seeing how Africans lived in these various countries and all the time you're shadowed by this haunting spectre of football in the background. And, and just the way, as we were saying at the beginning, it, it almost sets the rhythm of life mm. for some parts. Well, I mean, there are a number of things that came together quite early on in my time there that made me think, you know, there, there could be an interesting you know, story to tell. Um, partly there was the World Cup was coming up in South Africa. It was going to be the first time uh, the World Cup was coming to uh, to the African continent, so that was that was a big thing. Uh, then there was the fact that there were more African footballers uh, in the European game. So in the top leagues, you know, most of the big clubs had African players. So you know whether that was Yaya Toure at Barcelona at the time, or it was Samueletto, or it was Michael Essien, or it was Didier Drogba. Yeah, there were big name African players in the way that there'd been far less of them maybe ten years ago. Then there's, as I said, there was the fact that it was just played everywhere. Uh, then there was the fact that it was on TV all the time, you know, particularly English football. 
Uh, and then the other thing that made me sort of think there was something in this was when I first moved to Kenya, I was trying to get my head around Kenyan politics. And, you know, to a certain extent, I'm still trying to get my head around it. It's, you know, it's incredibly complicated. There's no, it's has nothing to do with ideology. There's no left or right. You know, it's down to uh, issues of ethnicity, tribalism, wealth, power, land, uh, all these different things. And at the same time as I was trying to sort of understand the power dynamics here, I also wanted to try and understand a bit more about Kenyan football. I thought, you know, I'm a football fan. I'll, you know, go and see some local Kenyan Premier League matches. So I, I opened my copy of the Daily Nation and I turned to the sports pages and I looked for the football fixtures. And I thought, this is a bit funny. There seems to be two Kenyan Premier Leagues here and they both seem to have the same clubs in and yet they've both got different fixture lists and here it says that Mathari United are playing at home this weekend and in the other one it says they're playing away and this doesn't make sense and it turned out that there was this you know uh, massive political row going on in Kenyan football at the time which is still sort of continuing now and there were two rival leagues that were trying to claim ownership and I soon realized that all the issues that affected Kenyan politics also affected Kenyan football. And over the, the next few months, the more I understood about one, the more I understood about the other. And so I started to think, well, maybe, you know, there's something broader to say here about football, that you know, if you can understand a country's football, you can understand a country's politics. And that proved to be the case, I think, you know, in a number of countries across Africa. And I think can probably be said in, to a certain extent about you know, countries all over the world. I mean, you know, even here in England, you look at you know, the, you know, the massive debt crisis that you know, the, the top clubs have had uh, and look at the massive debt crisis we now have as a country. You know, yeah. there, are, there are similarities you know, in, you know, between our football and our politics here. Uh, and so I, th I thought, taking all those things together, this was a great way of telling a broader story about Africa um, that would hopefully appeal to an audience that, you know, that didn't necessarily know that much about the continent in the first place. You mentioned there Africa almost uh, playing out a kind of a shadow version of real life, almost a shadow version of politics in a country like Kenya. Throughout the book, what I, what I found interesting was how you actually use football as a... As, as a as a different, sometimes it's a metaphor for things, sometimes it, it's a kind of parallel world that goes on unaffected by what's actually happening on the streets. I'm thinking about places like Somalia. Sometimes mm. it has a, a galvanising role on a political situation, such as when you're talking about Cote d'Ivoire. Um, shall we start off with, with Kenya, though? Because mm. you've just mentioned it. Um, what I found interesting about Kenya was that was that it wasn't just that it, it was, it was f forming a... a kind of a second political life or whatever, however you wish to describe it, uh, alongside real political life, uh, the clubs actually seemed to have a, a kind of social setup that mirrored some of the functions of a state. I mean, some mm. of them almost seemed to come out of it looking like NGOs. You know, they provided yeah. socially for people, etc. Well, uh, tell, yeah. tell us a bit about that. Well, I mean, one club in particular, Mathari United. I mean, Mathari is one of the, the, the biggest and... Uh, most dangerous at times uh, slums in Nairobi. It really suffered during the during the post-election violence there in two thousand eight, uh, and yet they have this uh, youth sports association, which was set up in the uh, late eighties, 
which now has, um, you know, I think it's about 1,500 teams and about 23,000 players. All in this single slum. All in this single slum. And the, uh, the, the teams don't just get points for winning matches. They get points for, you know, doing good things in their community. So clearing up rubbish or uh, for the older kids, um, yeah, attending sessions on HIV awareness. So there's a, it, it helps sort of solidify those sort of community links. Uh, and one of the interesting things generally within Kenyan football over the past few years is there's been a reform movement that has tried to get rid of the old corrupt guard. And they've been pretty successful. I mean, it's still tricky, but it's been pretty successful. And one of the uh, the top anti-corruption guys in Kenya, a guy called Jonga Thongo, who had been uh, a big campaigner, uh, anti-corruption campaigner, had then become the president's main advisor on anti-corruption. Uh, once he started to uncover corruption within the current regime, the president had turned against him. Uh, John then fled to the UK, fearing for his life. Um, he got involved in uh, Kenyan football, partly because he's a football fan, but also because his view was everyone knows Kenyan football is corrupt. If you clean it up and show that it can be, become clean, then you are proving that other institutions, public institutions, that everyone knows are corrupt, can also become clean. And actually then football can be an example for other things. And the theory is true. Uh, I, I, I think he's 100% right on that. In practice, it hasn't necessarily happened, but I think you are seeing a change there that a lot of the old sort of, you know, there's nothing we can do about this anymore, uh, is starting to sort of shift away. And, and part of that, I do think, is down to the fact that, you know, um, what's happened in football has shown that actually there is a way that, you know, just because things have been corrupted in the past doesn't mean they have to be in the future. Has anything happened to this strange two-league system that you were talking about? Yeah, no, that that was uh, cleared up sort of fairly soon after I uh, after I got there. Um, there's now an independent Premier League, which is run by the clubs. Uh, they vote on everything themselves, so there's no, um, you know, the incentives to cheat beforehand, you know, aren't really there. Uh, I mean, there used to be like really serious problems with you know referees, mm -hmm. you know, being paid to throw matches. Uh, that doesn't really happen now. Um, it's and because it's clean. It's got sponsorship. So mm -hmm. um, Supersport, which is the this Pan-African satellite broadcaster based in South Africa, um, now uh, broadcasts Kenyan Premier League matches around the whole of Africa. Mm -hmm. And so not only is Kenyan football now being seen across Africa, but there's more money now in it. And so, you know, the players can be paid properly, whereas mm -hmm. before they weren't. Of um, course, that's no bar to a bit of corruption here and there. No, no, it, it, it's not. It's... it's not. But I think it, it, it does change things. Uh, gradually, and it's become a more professional outfit. Mm -hmm. And staying with Kenya just for a second, because obviously we had that uh, situation after the last elections where there was an outbreak of violence, uh, which obviously, as with Kenyan politics, followed fairly clear tribal uh, lines. Mm. Um, is there any reflection of that in the football system as well? I mean, are, are there teams, for instance, that... that that represent certain tribal groups? Or, there or are. are well, or, or, or there were. And actually, this is, again, the interesting thing. So there were teams that were, you know, uh, seen as Luo teams or, mm -hmm. you know, 
you know, seen as teams based around certain ethnic groups. Um, but of course, as soon as you have a level playing field and you know there's no cheating, then if you uh, run a club, you know, based in, let's say, in Western Kenya, and you think, you know, we, we just want Luya guys in our team. Mm-hmm. If suddenly you think, actually, we still want to win and we used to be able to cheat to win and now we can't. And mm, there's these two good Kikuyu footballers. Mm-hmm. Should we? Mm, maybe we should get them in the team as well. And suddenly it breaks down those uh, ethnic barriers that were there before because you, know, you want the best possible team mm-hmm. um, because you, know, you need the best possible team to win, whereas in the past you didn't. Absolutely. So I think that has started to change things. Strange, um, you, you really could be describing Scottish football when it started to move away yeah. from, obviously, Celtic and Rangers up in Glasgow with their Catholic and Protestant uh, supporters. Uh, that all started to change as well. And then you had a couple of groundbreaking moves between yeah. the two clubs and with a Catholic playing for Rangers and vice versa. And that started to crumble a, a whole way. of. I mean, it hasn't changed everything up in Scotland. Uh, do you see in the football system and the way that way that you've just described it, it seems optimistic. Would that give you optimism about Kenya's future? Um, I, that I, step I, too far? <laughs> I think that's a slight step too far. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist by nature, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, Kenya's still got, you know, really serious problems. And, um, you know, I, I think probably, you know, of more importance to Kenya's political future is the election of a very good new chief justice, mm-hmm. um, or sorry, selection rather, um, uh, which just happened recently. And, I mean, I think it's still too early to say, really. Um, you know, they, they've got elections come up in, at the end of 2012. Uh, and if that all passes off peacefully, then, mm-hmm. then yes, I think we can say things have moved in the right direction. But until then, I think it's, yeah, football can do many things, but it can't. It can't quite bring, bring peace to Kenya just yet. OK, well, um, let's move to a country that does test. Uh, any anyone's powers of optimism and that's you go slightly north from Kenya and you end up in Somalia mm. um, and there the way that you portray football in your book it seems as though it, it, it it's almost an alternative world that allows people to escape from a from a pretty brutal re- uh, reality on the mm. streets of Mogadishu I mean when I was started to think about writing the book I was trying to work out what countries to cover and what countries not to. Um, and the way it's set out, I have 10 different chapters covering 13 different countries. And, you know, whenever I talked to people about what countries I was going to do, people would say, oh, well, you must write about Ghana mm-hmm. or you must write about Mozambique or you must write about you know, Zambia. And I remember by the time I'd finished my research, I probably had 30 countries that were on my shortlist and I mm. had to sort of whittle it down. Uh, and it would have been very easy to have done all the big successful countries like Ghana, like Senegal, so on, um, and ignore the countries like Somalia. But mm. actually, Somalia was the one I found most fascinating because, um, no, they're never going to get to the World Cup. They're never going to get to the African Nations Cup. They're possibly, you know, the worst side in the world. I mean, they're, they're rubbish. Mm. Uh, they weren't very good even before the, you know, the last 20 years of wars. Um, but they have a fascinating story to tell. The very fact that there is a national Somali team um, when there are no other 
national institutions in Somalia is in itself a, a massive achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get this you know, great mix within the team of guys from Mogadishu and, you know, uh, uh, and guys from the diaspora. So, yeah, the, the, the central defensive partnership at the, the East African Championships uh, a few years ago was uh, a guy called Hassan from who's from Mogadishu, who you know has a really really tough life in Mogadishu and wants to get out, but you know also has a wife and young kids and you know was offered a contract in Yemen but couldn't get his kids there as well, mm. so had to turn it down. And playing alongside him was a guy called Guled who uh, lives here in London and uh, plays for, or certainly did play for Hanwell Town in the British Gas Southern League. And is also, An amateur team, basically. Yeah, so yeah. Quite, quite a few rungs and, down the ladder, and even is, from Aston Villa. And his job is, uh, he's a, or he was anyway, a nightclub bouncer at the Trocadero at Leicester mm-hmm. Square. So, you know, you had this, and these guys were playing alongside each other. In the for an international team. team. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. Um, so, you know, you had some really passionate people who were determined to make sure that you know despite everything that was going on in Somalia that they would fulfill their international fixtures that when there were regional tournaments they would send a squad there they would as they put it fly the flag uh, and I was fortunate enough to see them win a match um, yeah against Tanzania in the 2008 2000 it was late 2008 um Sakafa Cup, which is the sort of Eastern Central African tournament, regional tournament. And it was the first time they won in a very, very long time. <laughs> uh, and it was, yeah, it was amazing just to, you so, know, to watch it happen. So what, what is football in Somalia? Because I, like you, I had never, ever, ever associated Somalia with football. Mm. Uh, well, until I read your book, of course. Uh, what does football in Somalia tell you about the, the country? I mean, you almost paint a, a picture of defiance in the, yes. in the face of a, of a country that, well, not even a country, but a, a situation that's just crumbling. You have um, you have peacekeeping forces from yeah, I mean, outside Somalia, etc. I mean, let, let, so, so to put it in context, Somalia's um, last proper government fell in, um, in 1991. And since then, there's been a series of uh, overlapping civil wars, uh, as well as you know, slightly misguided foreign interventions, whether that's from the US, from Ethiopia, mm-hmm. um, and from and from others as well. Um, and now with you know people from the, the Middle East as well, uh, and everything has fallen apart. You know, Mogadishu has become probably the most dangerous city in the world. Uh, you know, millions of people have fled. The world's largest refugee camp is now in northern Kenya, um, filled almost entirely with Somalis. Uh, the world's largest uh, camp of internally displaced people is just outside Mogadishu in a place called Afgoy, where there's, you know, the last count, I think 150,000 people there. Um, it's almost impossible to get aid in there because there's no functioning government, so who do you, you know, who do you work with on the ground? It has numerous, numerous problems, um, quite aside from the ones which vex us in the West, like piracy and terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet yeah, it's got a, quite a proud sort of local football history. Uh, Somalia was uh, was an Italian colony and, uh, and you know, they had football before, but they... That, uh, you know, the, the Italians also encouraged football when they were there. The league when it works in Somalia is called Serie A. 
uh, and you know, there's a big stadium that was built there in the 80s, uh, no, late 70s, I think, you know, which used to seat 60,000, uh, which is now, you know, a military camp. Uh, you know, football, football's a big thing there, uh, and, and but they can't play it. You know, it's been impossible to play for now that the league for, for five years, uh, partly because of war and then also because Al-Shabaab, the, mm-hmm. um, the Islamist militant group that control now most of southern and central Somalia, uh, don't allow it. Uh, and there was this, you know, this story about in 2006, I think it was now, when uh, uh, Al-Shabaab's sort of predecessor organisation, the Islamic courts, were running Mogadishu. And the Somali team wanted to go and play the local, uh, the, the regional tournament. And it was in Ethiopia, which is Somalia's sworn enemy. And so the clerics that are running Mogadishu said, well, look, we'll let you go, but on one condition. If you play Ethiopia, you must win. And if you don't win, you must not let them out of the stadium alive. Now, fortunately, Somalia were drawn in a different group from Ethiopia, so they didn't have to play them, which is just as well, because they would have lost. They lost every other match in that tournament. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they've just had a series of, you know, for, for, the, for, the, guy, for the Somali FA, you know, they've had a series of, um, you know, uh, obstacles thrown up that would put off most normal people, and yet they still make sure that every time they're supposed to play an international match, they'll be there. Mm. We were just chatting before this interview started about uh, one of the big hitters on the continent, Egypt. And mm. you were very, very keen to, uh, to to chuck in a few words about exactly what was happening in Egypt. Uh, they have been... Egypt has been at the World Cup several times. It's won the African Cup of Nations mm. several times. And it has two of the biggest clubs in, in, um, in yeah. Africa as well on the continent that have frequently won... Um, the club African Champions there. League, yeah. So, yeah, no, it, it's it, Egypt was fascinating. I mean, I th- this book was obviously written before before the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, and what was you know, particularly intriguing to me was how um, how politicised football had become there. So Hosni Mubarak, you know, associated himself with a successful Egypt side. And you know, partly because he controlled the media, that you know, he was able to, you know, when he if he went to see an Egypt match, that would be the lead story on the news. You know, Hosni Mubarak visits, you know, you know, Egyptian footballers, breaking news. Uh, and that was his way of sort of identifying, trying to sort of identify himself with the Egyptian nation, or one of the ways he tried to mm-hmm. do that. And. Uh, and in the run-up to uh, the last World Cup, Egypt were trying to qualify, uh, and they had to win their final match against Algeria mm. by three goals to qualify. Again, you're talking about sworn rivals. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, the the last time this had happened was in 1989 when. Uh, Egypt had won. They they beat Algeria, and the match had ended in a riot. the The Algerian players had rioted, uh, and uh, the Egyptian doctor had been uh, hit over the head by a bottle, uh, with a bottle by uh, one of Algeria's best players, uh, blinding him in one eye. 
there was an Interpol arrest, you know, a warrant out for his arrest for 20 years. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was, it was like, this is a serious proper rivalry. And in the weeks leading up to this match, all everyone would talk about in Egypt was this match. They wouldn't talk about food prices. They wouldn't talk about unemployment. They wouldn't talk about the problems with Mubarak and how he was trying to get his son Gamal to succeed him. All of these things went away. And for the, the, the weeks leading up to this match, everything was focused on uh, on Egypt winning. Uh, and again, Mubarak and his son Gamal tried to associate themselves with this team and tried to build this picture of one Egypt with them at the, the forefront of it, essentially as sort of the leaders of the team. And then when Egypt lost um, and didn't qualify, there was this sort of huge sort of sense of anger. And the government made sure this anger was directed at the Algerians. And so, yeah, there was a big riot outside the Algerian embassy. Yeah, thousands of people throwing Molotov cocktails. And it just struck me at the time, and I mentioned this at the end of the chapter, it was how just fundamentally depressing it was that there was this huge groundswell of anger that the government's able to manipulate and say, yeah, it's all the Algerians' fault. And yet you didn't see the same anger against the government itself. Um, and and then, of course, you know, 12 months later, you know, you did in quite dramatic ways. Uh, and, you know, I don't think, you know, football helped to bring down the government in any way. I don't think there's a link like that. But I thought it was interesting that the government at the time was able to try and manipulate this anger in a way that obviously in the end they couldn't. Mm. But there is another uh, country that you do talk about in, in the book where football itself does play a central role. If you go over to the west of the continent, mm. you end up in Cote d'Ivoire and uh, you have a, a, a particularly successful team there led by yeah. Didier, Didier Drogba. At the same time as you have a, a conflict between the north and south, and obviously this is something that it's been back in the news since you've yeah. read the book, since you wrote the book. But can can you explain what your kind of thesis was about about football being being a healing force? Well, I think yeah, as you say, I mean, it, it, I, well, I'm, I'm, I said at the start, I'm you know, by nature an optimist, and I think it's in hindsight, I think I, I've been slightly too optimistic about about Cote d'Ivoire, I mean, particularly as we've seen what happened. But, I mean, to, to go back to, to, you know, to the original story, you know, this was a very successful country in West Africa, um, post-independence, uh, strong economy. Uh, things started to fall apart in the, in the late 90s. Uh, and they had a, a problem with it. There was essentially a, a divide opened up between North and South. Uh, the South tended to be more Christian. Uh, the North tended to be more Muslim. Uh, there'd also been a lot of immigrants into the North that come because there was a strong economy and because the... the from Burkina Faso, bur from, they, yeah. Mainly from Burkina Faso, but also from elsewhere. Um, and, and then politics became increasingly poisonous. Um, uh, Lauren Bagbo, who, you know, who ruled for about 10 years up until you know, just a, recently earlier this year, uh, started talking about this sense of uh, uh, Ivorite, sort of Ivorianness, uh, claiming that these guys in the north didn't have it, and they weren't truly Ivorian. Uh, and the country there was a there was a civil war, and the country was split between north and south. Now, during this time, 
the national football team was one of the few national institutions which still existed and which still had people from both sides of the divide. And so Drogba was from the south. Um, you know, the Torre brothers were from the north. There was, you know, there was a real mix within the team. And on the whole, these guys got on. Uh, and at the same time as, you know, this was happening, you know, th- th- this, this team was, was pretty successful. They qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 2006. They got to the final of the African Nations in 2006. Uh, they were a successful side. And, uh, you know, Drogba in particular tried to um, push this message of peace that we're all Ivorians together and that, you know, that we can... Uh, you know that, that that we should be united, uh, and there are a succession of attempts at, at peace deals, and that they all sort of fell by the wayside. And then the one that stuck in the end was in two thousand and seven, early two thousand and seven. Uh, but it wasn't really until Drogba uh, went to the north to Boaké, which was the rebel-held capital in the north and said, we should have our next international match here to essentially seal the deal, to prove that we're one, you know, Cote d'Ivoire again. That things really, that most Ivorians really felt, yes, okay, this is, we feel this is sort of happening, that this is a proper peace deal. And so, sure enough, the match happened in Boaké. It was was against Madagascar as an African Nations qualifier. They won 5-0. Drogba scored the final goal. Uh, against it, Madagascar. Yeah, yeah, against Madagascar. But still, <laughs> it was, it was yeah, up, wasn't yeah, it? exactly. Uh, but it was yeah, everyone that was there on that occasion says, yes, this is the moment where yeah, we felt like one nation again. Uh, and so it was seen. It was widely seen as that was sort of the icing on the cake, and it helped sort of bring the country together. Um, I mean, why I'm sort of wonder whether I was slightly too optimistic now in hindsight is because obviously, you know, this peace deal fell apart two or three years later and you know you had a very fractious election um almost went back to war and you know Bagbo in the end was holed up in a bunker beneath the presidential palace uh and yeah it 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 it, it didn't end in the way that you know one would have hoped um but I mean I think there is a you know on the whole there was there was a story to tell there about how you know Football had helped to be a uniting force. Uh, I mean, I think to say that, you know, they were the ones that brought peace to the country would be taking it too far, but they certainly were a very important glue that helped to um, help to give a semblance of national unity at, at, during the, the Civil War and also helped to cement that peace when it happened in 2007. Um, and I think, you know... There are still problems in Cote d'Ivoire, big problems, but but that I think was really sort of one of the uh, I say I think it really helped to sort of bring the country together at certain key times, and certainly that was the moment where you, you, you ask a lot of Ivorians, you know, when did you feel this peace deal was going to work? They say it was the match in Boaké. Mm. It's interesting when you talk about uh, figures like uh, Drogba and the Touré brothers. There's a lot of 
pride in a lot of African countries about players who actually make it for the big international teams. Mm. Um, and there's also, uh, as you were reflecting earlier, especially about Kenya, but obviously the, the league seems a little bit more established now. But how, how can I put it? The, the local teams, the local leagues just don't mm. seem to pick up uh, as much attention. Uh, no. Everyone crowds into the local bars to watch Barcelona play, Manchester United play, etc., etc. Mm. Um, what do you think is going on there? Do, do you feel as though it, it, it's a sign that Ivorians or Nigerians or whatever can make it on the big stage? Or is it almost a, a way of escaping the, you know, the immediate surrounds of, uh, of wherever these matches are being watched? Well, I think it's several things. Okay, for the for the footballers, let's take them initially. For them, it's about, you know, it's mainly about money. You know, if you're going to play in the Nigerian league, you're going to get paid very, very little. You might not even get paid at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and the league's very badly organised. It's incredibly corrupt. There are huge problems. You know, if you can play for Chelsea and earn £60,000 a week, then you're going to go and do that. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, <laughs> there's very few things that compare to that. It's not you know, just playing in the Nigerian. No, no, no league. exactly. But I mean, that that's yeah. You know, but, so, but, so but they, even they, playing they for a medium-ranking team somewhere yeah. stuck in a, in a in a relatively small outpost of Europe. Well, I mean, the amount of money you're going to you know earn paying you know uh, earn playing for you know Helsingborg in Sweden is going to be far more mm-hmm. than you will earn you know playing for you know, by LC United in Nigeria. I mean, it's just, you know, far, far more. And also, there's a chance it will lead on to, you know, bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. So for the players, you know, it's it's a no-brainer. You go, you know, you, you go to where the, the, the more professional outfit is. And I think, you know, that's the same for, uh, for a lot of people. You know, it would be the same. And I think you can also draw a link here with sort of, you know, migration routes from Africa to Europe. You know, in that people feel that that's where you can have a proper career or that's where you can, mm. yeah, make some money. So at, at, at lots of different levels. So so there's that. Um, for the fans, it's, you know, now you've got satellite TV. On a Saturday afternoon, if you've got a choice of, you know, going to a bar and watching the best footballers in the world or going down, you know, the road to a stadium... And you know, watching a local side, you know, play not very good football on a not very good pitch in a stadium filled with not many people, you know, what are you going to do? Mm. Um, there are very few clubs in Africa that have a real following. Um, yeah, you know, amongst fans, there's there are some exceptions. There's you know, we, we've mentioned Egypt. There's you know, Al Ahly and Zamalek there. And in South, uh, South in Africa, South Africa, there's, there's you know, Orlando Pirates and Kaiser Chiefs. In uh, you know, there's a couple of other. You know, places, you know, people, a lot of people support St. George's in Ethiopia or, was, you know, Tibi Mazembe about, in yeah, Congo. Exactly. Um, yeah, there, there are certain exceptions. But on the whole, you know, the big clubs that people want to watch are, and they feel, a, you know, a link to are the big European clubs. You ask any African man, you know, in his 20s, who do you support? They will give you the name of the European club, probably a British club, mm. probably Manchester United, Chelsea or Arsenal. Never Villa, but, you know, <laughs> never Middlesbrough. You know, it, it, oh, yeah. but it'll we be... had Joseph De Zero job from Cameroon once. Well, yeah, there might be someone in Cameroon who, you know, who, who knows about it. But, you know, the, and, and it's partly chicken and egg, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I think, you know, some, 
some clubs could do more to attract more of a local fan base. I think they really need to. But uh, but yeah, no, it's a problem. I think for African football, um, you do have some clubs, not just the big established ones, such as the Egyptian or South African ones that we were just mentioning, but uh, you mentioned TP uh, Mazembe. Yeah. Now that is one that does actually have ambitions that stretch well beyond its little corner of Katanga in the south yeah, of DRC. Jesus. So uh, I mean. It, it, Again, I, I just want to mention it. It, it almost reflects mm. that you know the big man idea as well. There's mm. one man behind the whole like, the the club, but uh, it's also got a much longer heritage than I realised. Yeah, I mean, it was set up. I mean, I mean, it was set up quite a while ago, and they actually won the uh, African Champions Cup in uh, twice in, in the late '60s, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know think, things sort of went wrong. But I, I first met the the president of the club in Harare. Mm-hmm. And I was there to watch a African Champions League game between Monomatapa, who were the champions of Zimbabwe at the time, and TP Mazembe. And I'd been spending a bit of time with the guys at Monomatapa. Can't say that right, without, without the water, Monomatapa. Um, and... You know, they were talking about the struggles with Zimbabwean football and you know, how little money they had and you know, how bad the league was at the time. And I asked, well, what's your budget? You know, what, what, how much does it cost you a year to keep this club running? And they said it's about 200,000 US dollars yeah, mm-hmm. for a whole season, for a year. And then I met uh, Moise Katumbi, who's the president of TP Mazembe and mm-hmm. also the governor of Katanga province and also a billionaire. Uh, and I said, "What's your uh, what's your budget?" And he sort of laughed and said, "You know what for this match, or for the, for or for the Champions League, or for the whole season?" I said, "Okay, well, what about just for this match?" He says, uh, "Well, the win bonus that I'll share out amongst the players and staff if we're successful today is two hundred fifty thousand dollars." And you know that was the difference between, you that, know, between his club and that's not just European levels. That's top European levels yeah and, and you know and I'm and some of the players are on serious money they're on like several thousand dollars a week which meant that you know when big European clubs well when medium-sized European clubs came in for them you know a TP Mazembe didn't need to sell because they didn't need the money and b the players didn't necessarily think it was worth their while going to Belgium say you know mm. the small club in Belgium when they'll probably earn more you know playing for the biggest club in Africa Sorry, can I interrupt? I mean, mm. Katanga, it's almost uh, de rigueur to, to, to include as a prefix mineral-rich Katanga. Mm. Um, and in a sense, you can see some of this money going into, you know, bypassing the people of the area and going straight into the pockets of footballers. Uh, this is something that's very easy to get moralistic about. But after all, this is also happening from, uh, you know, um, in Chechnya, you've got uh, Kalirov. Mm. Building up a football Well, I mean, team. it's you, very easy to get moralistic you, about you, you, what's happening Chelsea. in Chechnya as well. I mean, it's, you know, yes. what's happening... But, but, but that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, do, you, do you feel as though um, there's anything, because of the situation for many people in a place such as the DRC, mm. there is a real need to, uh, to, to be careful with what happens and, and where the money goes and whether it is seen, so agree- seen to go so blatantly into the pockets of, of footballers mm. as opposed I mean, I to think the wider community. I don't have too much problem with some of it going to the pockets of footballers because I also think actually it's in the grand scheme of things it's not a great deal of money um, compared to the amount that's going 
straight into the pockets of the you know the Congolese um you know, for want of a better word, oligarchs. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. I must say, it's, it's, it's uh, of all the things that 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 I can get worked up about in uh, mm-hmm. in African football, that's probably one of the the, the smaller things. Um, I mean, I think you know, it's it's not uh, you know, in football terms, it's not really a level playing field. You know, in that Tipe Mzembe have huge amounts of money, and no one else really does. Um, which is why they've, you know, won the African Champions League uh, two years running, um, and you know can afford to, you know, to buy the best players and pick up the best players from wherever they want. Uh, I, I mean, yes, I mean it, it. It does throw up some some of these moral issues about, you know, in the same way as here. You know, we've got players on. You know, Carlos Tevez is on two hundred fifty thousand pounds a week. Mm-hmm. You know, playing in front of fans who I doubt there's a single Manchester City fan going down every week who earns £250,000 in a year. Apart from the ones from Abu Dhabi, that is. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, apart from the owners. So, I mean, I think that's just a, a, a general sort mm. of problem with you know market capitalism rather than a, a, a specific Congolese problem. Mm, or African one. Yeah. Um, I don't want to spend too much longer on the interview because it's always easy easy to keep overrunning with these things. So I suppose I wanted to get to uh, mm, one sure. of the things that a lot of people know about uh, African football, and that is uh, there was a fateful comment. It was Pele who said that he thought an mm. African team would win the World Cup by 2000 or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Walter Winterbottom actually first said it. Okay, um, England coach. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the the first England coach. He said it in the in the 50s, I think. Mm. Um and and yeah, I mean, and 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 Pele also, you know, says a lot of nonsense. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you're going to ask whether you think actually that's possible. Well, I mean, obviously it's well, not obviously, possible because I mean, that possible was last century. Yeah, but you know, but when's it going to happen? But I mean, f- what we're what we've been talking about is football as an enormous and an enormously popular force. Where mm. uh, in African society, uh, they're starting to get the business sorted out. They're obviously producing the players that mm. are starting to be the stars of some of the biggest teams mm. in the world. Uh, do you feel as though there's there's any hint that this is going to happen in the in the near future? Uh, yes, and, and I think you know, let, let, let's not forget it almost almost happened. You know, in 2010, you know, uh, Ghana should have got to semi-finals of the World mm-hmm. Cup. You know, if uh, Suarez hadn't handled on the line, and if you know, uh, Gian hadn't then hit the bar with a penalty, mm-hmm. they would have been in the semis. Who knows what might have happened then? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think there are there there are two big things holding African football back, and that is uh, organisation and corruption. Mm-hmm. And I think it's no surprise that Ghana were the team that did well. When Ghana's FA is, and Ghana's league is relatively good, its FA is yeah, relatively good, uh, and they invest in youth development. And you saw that, you know, they won the Under Twenty World Cup the year before. They've got a lot of good young players coming through. Mm-hmm. You compare them with Nigeria, who had, you know, who've got some fantastic players or have had some fantastic players. But they had the most chaotic preparation for a World Cup you could ever imagine. You know, everything from, you know, the plane that was supposed to be taking them there broke down to organising friendly matches, which then had to be called off, uh, to, you know, booking a a hotel, which was then in the wrong part of of the country. I mean, everything that could possibly go wrong went wrong. Um, 
you know, Cote d'Ivoire, their preparation was was ludicrous. They had this uh, very good uh, coach who uh, lost one match in 22, I think, or something, over the previous two years. Uh, but because he lost one match, they sacked him. So then hired Sven Juran Eriksson three months before the tournament, who didn't speak a word of French. And the Ivorian players, a lot of them don't speak any English. I know I've tried to interview half of them. Uh, and, you know, so, and, and, you know, they hired him just for the World Cup. And so, of course, their preparation was going to be bad. Nigerian's coach, you know, was hired just for the World Cup. So, of course, their preparation's going to be bad. Mm. So it's, you know, these are sort of simple mistakes that are being made that, you know, if, if Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Nigeria and Cameroon had all had better preparation for this World Cup, you know, they all could and should have got to the second round and then who knows. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's not impossible for an African team to win in 2014 in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Not impossible at all. Um, you know, I wouldn't say any of them are going to be favourites, but, you know, I would not be surprised if an African side reached semi-finals in 2014. Mm-hmm. I think once you reach the semis, then, you know, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a football question. Uh, let's finish on a, on a particularly African question. What's your favourite place in Africa? Where, where have you visited that you still think back and think, my goodness me, that was special? Um, that's funny. I, a lot of people ask that, and my question's always, a, people go, what, really? And my favourite place, oddly, was Mogadishu. I mm. just, you know, met so many people there that I loved and were just amazing. And, and it is, despite everything, still very beautiful and, you know, right on the coast and, Mm. That comes through in the book, by the way. Oh, good. Okay, great. Yeah, I've never been. <laughs> it's well. I mean, I don't suggest you go. Um, it's still ridiculously dangerous, and I wouldn't go now at all. But it's it's stunningly beautiful, and yeah, the people have got such a you know, it, it, I, it's always so so cliche to say, oh, the people are wonderful. But yeah, you know, a lot of the people, you know, a lot of my friends there are wonderful, and they're just and you know determined to. You know, get through everything that's put in their way, and people you know you don't ever want to get on the wrong side of an argument with. Um, but aside from Somalia, I mean Kenya is you know Kenya was our home for four or five years, and mm-hmm. uh, for all its problems, it's you know it's an amazing country, um, and uh, and 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 it was you know it wasn't just the place that we lived; it was it was our home, and you know absolutely loved living there. Uh, and yeah, it's got yeah, it's got incredible scenery, incredible wildlife. The coast, brilliant. You know, the lakes are great. Nairobi is a really vibrant city. Loads going on, um, and the football is improving. Yeah, I still wouldn't. You know, <laughs> it, it's it, not going to be them winning. To the be World honest, Cup. if it, it, on a Saturday afternoon, it's a choice between you know going to the bar and watching you know English football or uh, going down to Nyaya Stadium and watching Kenyan football, I'd still, I have to say, go and watch the English football, as would, you know, 99%, 99. 99.9% of all Kenyans. Steve, thank you very much indeed. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was my interview with Steve Bloomfield, the author of Africa United, How Football Explains Africa, a really enjoyable, insightful and at times surprising read. This is Nicholas Walton from the New Books Network, wishing you a good day from here in London. Thank you.